be seated. My privilege this morning to introduce our, our guest speaker for today, Jim Stamberg. Jim and Marissa and their three children, Dawson, Brennan, and Kira, are missionaries with Send International. They live in Anchorage, Alaska, where Jim serves as the area director for Send North, and that involves overseeing church planning ministries in Alaska and Canada, as well as the Anchorage-based logistics and support team. And when they first moved to Alaska over 15 years ago, they served in a little village called Neck Neck. That was on the southwest uh, coast of Alaska, a very remote area where Jim served as a missionary pilot. And he and Marissa served in the community church there, in the camp ministry, just a multitude of ways that they served. Jim uh, grew up in northeast Iowa he attended Moody Bible Institute, and that's where he met Marissa. Marissa spent a good portion of her childhood in Glen Allen, Alaska, where her parents were serving with SEND as missionaries. And uh, when her parents, Jean and Mary Mayhew, moved to the Detroit area for a chunk of that time with their family, they attended Lakeside Bible Chapel. So that's where we got to know Marissa. Marissa was a Sunday school teacher here before she left for Moody Bible Institute. And it's so funny, this week my daughter, my adult daughter, Allie, who's in her 30s now, was visiting us. She lives in Florida. She was unpacking, one of her jobs was to unpack bins and get rid of the stuff. You know, you leave at your parents' house. And she pulled out a little magazine she had made as a child. And in it, she had said, it's dedicated to my favorite Sunday school teacher, Marissa. So it just seemed funny that she pulled that out this week when Marissa was back here visiting with us. So Lakeside's privileged to partner with Jim and Marissa and their family, and we're really privileged to have Jim come and open the word and teach us today. So let's give a warm Lakeside welcome to Jim Stanberg. Thank you, Steve, appreciate that. It's gonna be back here. I think that was a very comprehensive uh, view of our ministry. The only thing you didn't mention is, that, I, I don't think you mentioned, is that this is also the church we were married in 21 years ago. So many of you were there. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, this has always been a church family that has been an encouragement to us. Uh, you guys are actually the ones that commissioned us into ministry, so thank you. Thank you for standing behind us, uh, encouraging us, praying for us, giving not just as a church, but many individuals as well. Thank you. Uh, we could not do what we do apart from you, so thank you. Um, I'm not going to talk a lot about the ministry this morning, um, uh, but I do want to encourage you in the back. There is a table back there where we have our new prayer card if you'd like one. Okay, And then also, if you don't get our newsletters, prayer updates, fill out one of these and hand them to us before you go. We'd love to, love to uh, keep in touch with you that way. Uh, I'm going to start off by reading uh, in Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36. And this isn't our main text today. This is just by way of introduction as we get rolling here. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers at the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, 
Churches like Lakeside, you guys get many different missionary newsletters. You guys have gotten many missionary newsletters from us, prayer updates, and you guys read through them. And writing these is always a bit of a challenge uh, because you want to talk about the things God's doing, yet you want to talk about the continued challenges and the needs and why you need to remain there. Uh, But there's one thing that doesn't get a lot of airtime in missionary newsletters. That's conflict. Nobody wants to read about conflict. Nobody wants to read about disagreement. Uh, But uh, it happens, right? Okay, now I I have not had a chance to hear any of the skinny on what's gone on in Lakeside over the past five years. So everything I'm about to share is totally ignorant of what might have happened here. I just know that this is the message that has been burbling in my heart over the past several years as Send North, our mission has gone through conflict, and as I know many other churches have gone through conflict. This may be a a message that's already been preached here dozens of times. I have no idea. Maybe it's not, Uh, but it's one that's close to my heart. I hope it is an encouragement to you guys today. Uh, And because it is something that I am passionate about, there's the tendency for me to, one, go long-winded. I'll do my best to have you guys gone by two today. And uh, also, there's the temptation for me to add a bunch of stuff that's not from Scripture. So there's going to be three cornerstone texts we're going to look at this morning. And each time, uh, if you'd humor me, we're going to stand up when we read those texts and just kind of recognize that this is what we're basing uh, our time together on. And as we walk away, I hope that those will be the things that you remember and not the silly things I say. All right? So we're going to look at uh, three different things today. We're going to look at our basis for unity in the church and missions. We're going to talk about our part in preserving unity and then the result of unity. So our first passage is going to take us to Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, please jump to Ephesians chapter 2. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the, uh, the whole chapter. I'm just going to summarize the first half of the chapter, then we'll read the second half together. Um, but the first half of the chapter, as many of us are familiar with, is where the gospel is laid out, where Paul explains that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You had no hope. You were, you were without God. You, were, you had no chance, totally separated from Christ, dead, not drowning, but at the bottom of the, at the, bottom of the river already. And that through Christ, God, rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, right? This is a passage we return to often as followers of Jesus. And now if you'll stand with me, starting in verse 11. Stand if you're able. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access and one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You may be seated. So Paul gives us several pictures here. Uh, And of course, as we read this, Paul is talking about the unity that is created through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Oftentimes we might think that like, well, it's our job to create unity. We don't create unity any more than we create our salvation, than we make our salvation happen. Unity is something that happens when we choose to recognize our complete sinfulness and our utter dependence upon Christ, and we place our faith in Jesus, and we become united with God. When he adopts us into our family, unity is a byproduct of that. There's a, a family in our ministry uh, who, who works in Anchorage. They're originally from Texas, and they are about my age, and they have a fantastic ministry of orphan care. Uh, they've fostered dozens of kids. I think they've fostered 50 or 60 kids Uh, They've adopted about a half dozen kids. I kind of lose track. I get confused sometimes. Uh, And they just have this this amazing ministry of of caring for um, kids and and young women who are in distress and who need help. Okay. Now, when they bring a kid into their household, especially through adoption, that kid becomes, you know, part of the family. They become, this is their new mom and dad. Now, they don't get a choice in... The siblings, right? It's not like they fill out an application like, well, I'd like a sibling who is uh, kind and shares the toys and uh, always talks to me nicely. No, that's not how it works, is it? When you become adopted into the family, you become adopted into the whole family, and you are part of the family, and that includes the sisters and the brothers and everybody together. And it's that way in the body of Christ as well. When we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior as our Redeemer, we inherit with that the body of Christ around us, brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom we might not like all the time, some of whom might not always treat us well. Sometimes we might not be nice to them. Sometimes we might have really sharp disagreements in the words of in, in Acts there in Paul and Barnabas. There's differences, but that doesn't change the fact that when we are adopted into Christ's family, we are adopted into the whole family, and we are become unified with brothers and sisters in Christ. There's other word pictures that Paul gives us here in Ephesians 2. Uh, one of those is citizens in a kingdom, right? When we are citizens of the United States, when we, whether people are born here or whether they come in and immigrate, they become citizens of everyone. Now, in our country, we really want to make this sharp divide politically, right? It's like, well, those people on the other side of the political aisle, you know, the the liberals, the Democrats, the Republicans, whatever, okay? And we think that, like, we're somehow separate from them. But the truth is, we are still all citizens of the same country. And you may think, like, yeah, but they're, they're fighting for something totally different. Well, I don't know. Ask the two guys in the foxhole next to each other, right? I think their question is not always going to be, well, are you a socialist, are you a Democrat, are you a Republican? It's going to be, hey, we're following the same commanding officer, right? We're both, we're both going the same direction, right? That's where the rubber really hits the road. The other example that Paul gives us here is stones in a building. There's the master builder at work, Jesus Christ, or our God our Father, and Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And he's building this, this, this temple, this structure together. He's placing one rock and another rock. He never asks, 
hey, what do you think of putting this rock next to you there? You know, sometimes we're up against a rock and it's like, I don't like that rock. But that's the rock that God puts there. And he has a purpose that's bigger than any purpose that we can see. Now, I want to take a slight bunny trail here um, as we're talking about this basis of unity and how when we're adopted into Christ's family, we're brought into his family with brothers and sisters in Christ that sometimes look different than us, sometimes think different than us. Uh, and I've been doing a lot of thinking over the past several years of the nature of the church. You know, and there's, there's church government and there's church structure and there's local churches. And, but as we study in Scripture, and as theologians call it, we talk about the Catholic church or the universal church. All followers of Jesus in all time and all places, okay? That's what, uh, when we talk about the, the, the Catholic church or the universal church, universal church and we're talking about the Bible, in, in God's view, there is no dividing wall between all these different churches. Now, we have our local body here, and we have our structure. We have a bank account, I'm sure. We have owned property. We pay staff, okay? But from God's viewpoint, when he looks out and sees the church, he doesn't necessarily see those walls the same way that we do. Does that mean those, wall, those, those distinctions are bad? No, not at all. In fact, I think a, a, a model that's been helpful for me to think about this is trellises and vines, all right? I'm not a gardener. I don't grow things. Not my gift. I know that I'm sure there's some folks in here who have gardens going right now and understand this stuff a lot better than I do. Um, but when I think of the body of Christ, I like to think of that as the vines, the living green thing that's growing, all right? And this is growing through fellowship. It's growing through Bible reading. It's growing through prayer. It's growing through serving one another and worshiping together. But that doesn't necessarily happen always according to church lines or mission organizational lines. That can happen outside of those walls as well. So what's the purpose of you know, Lakeside Bible Chapel as an organization, as an institution? Well, it's like the trellis. It's not exactly the growing thing, but it helps support the growing thing. I'm going to share with you an interesting article that I found online um, all about how to trellis grapes in your home garden for those who, are, who would like to do such a thing. And there's a question here. It says, do you need a trellis for grapes? Well, technically, you don't absolutely need to trellis grapes. They do just fine in the wild without our help. But grapevines are natural climbers and will grab onto anything that's nearby, including other plants. So if you don't provide a proper support, they will grow wild wherever they want. Plus, when they're left to sprawl out along the ground, they're more prone to disease issues. They'll also be within reach of ground-dwelling pests that will feast on the fruit. So yes, if you want a healthy crop, then you'll definitely need to provide some type of structure for them, and a very sturdy one at that. Interesting. Talking about vines, but that's very, very true of the local church and body of believers as well. The point of all this isn't to make a big deal about church structures or anything like that. The point of it is, is to remind us that oftentimes when we think about the church and the body of Christ and unity, that we can become preoccupied with the local church or the missionary organization of Send International that I serve with. And we can think like, yeah, we need to preserve unity within, within this group. And actually, Christ's, what Christ has done is far bigger than our little body here or our missionary organization. He's created unity through the blood of Christ among all followers of him. Every church up and down this road, okay? Now, it's, it's uh, one of the privileges that we get in this crazy thing that we do, what we call home service. Some organizations call it deputation. 
uh, all sorts of different things. We go around, we get to connect with and update our, our sending churches and financial supporters and share with them about what God's been doing, people that have been praying for us. And we get to see kind of like all these little cross-sections of church across the country. And uh, some of the churches are thriving and some of them are struggling. And some churches we go into and they're like, man, they do things so differently than we would do things if we had a choice. And some do things in a way that we really resonate with. But as I was in one of these churches recently that was kind of struggling more, and we were sitting down, we're taking communion together, I'm reminded, this is the body of Christ. This is God's people that I am unified together with. Not just because they pray for us or give to our ministry or care about what's going on in Alaska, but because we all share the same Savior. He died for us all. And I may not like the way they do church. I may think that there's a different way that they could do it, but it doesn't change the fact that through Jesus Christ, we are all still part of the same body, all still connected to him. So that's the basis of our unity. Let's talk a little bit now about the responsi- our responsibility in the unity. I'm going to turn to Ephesians 4, so just a couple chapters ahead. Once again, if you would stand with me, if you're able. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, chapter 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Thank you. You may be seated. So while unity has been created through our salvation, we have a role to protect that unity, to preserve that unity. And this is a passage that I really think captures the heart of what that looks like for us. And we're just going to step through a few of the words here that Paul uses. First off, in verse 2, he says, With all humility. Humility. What does it look like to preserve unity? It looks like humility. What does that mean? It means recognizing that my way isn't always the most important way. It means recognizing that I might be wrong. It means recognizing that I don't have all the answers. In Philippians 2, uh, in Philippians it talks about, you know, uh, um, sorry, brain, brain, I'm I'm, going to misquote it, so I'm going to go directly to the source here. (laughs) uh, Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Humility. Also in verse 2, he says, with patience, with patience. Patience is a great reminder that, like, God's not done with me yet. If I'm honest with myself, I have lots of problems, okay? I don't know about you. Anybody have fights on the way to church this morning? No, no, you don't need to answer. <laughs> but, hey, my wife and I may have had conflict over the past couple of days. Okay, we did. We've had lots of, lots of conflict over the past couple of days, all right? Patience. God's not done with me yet. He's still working on me. So I give permission to the people, other people in the body of Christ that God's still working on them. They're not done yet. They're still half-baked, all right? 
they're still growing. Patience. I can't expect other Christians to have it all together because God is still working on me too. Also in verse 2, bearing with one another in love. I think this is closely tied to the idea of forgiveness. Bearing with one another. Sometimes people intentionally, sometimes people unintentionally kick us in the shins. Right? We want to just, oh, we want to fight back against that. You don't know what you've done. You don't know how you're hurting me. But there's this idea of bearing with one another in love, forgiveness, forgiving over and over and over and over again. Then in verse 4, Paul talks about there is one body and one spirit. And this brings me to, uh, reminds me of 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul is talking about the, uh, the body of Christ. You know, there's, there's the ears and the hands and the feet. And it's a passage that we often go to and we want to talk about how God has gifted you. And hey, you've got a role to play in the church and you want to learn your gifts so you can get plugged in. And that's helpful, but that's actually not why that passage was written. Anytime you see in Scripture a passage that talks about the spiritual gifts and the roles within the church, take a look. It's usually within the context of unity. It's not primarily written to understand yourself. It's written to understand the other people in the body of Christ and to appreciate them, to value them, to respect them, to recognize that God has made them unique God has made them valuable, even when they drive you crazy. And it's funny, because usually it's the people that are gifted differently than us that drive us the most crazy. Okay? So I believe one of the ways I'm gifted is in the gift of administration. It drives me crazy when people don't respond to my emails. Come on, just respond. You got to just do this one thing. Just keep up with your life, you know. But then there's folks that have, like, you know, the gift of mercy. And they're like, Jim, can you just be a little bit more compassionate and thoughtful? And it's just, it, it, oh, it's hard. That's an area God's growing me in. But we're all part of one body. One body. And we demonstrate that through mutual respect and appreciation of our differences. People who do things different than us. People who, frankly, we don't like. That was a big thing coming to the mission field that was surprising for us, something that we had to work through, is when we started to get to know some of our teammates, and we realized, we kind of went in expecting like, yeah, these are going to be like our new best friends, yeah, and then we realized, actually, they're not. They're way different than us, and there's things that we don't like about them, and there's probably things they don't like about us, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that we work together for the sake of the gospel, that we work together and we figure out ways to respect one another and communicate with one another and work alongside and support one another, even when it's not easy, so that Christ can be preached, so that the gospel can go forward, so that people can hear the name of Jesus and experience transformation and new life in him. Which leads us to John 17. I'm turn to John 17 with me. <clears throat> if you'd like to stand with me. <clears throat> I'm going to start in the first part of the chapter, and then we'll jump ahead. So starting in John 17, verse 1. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and of course this is his, you know, some of his final prayer uh, before the crucifixion, okay? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And now we're going to skip ahead to verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Who is that? Us? Yeah, very good. I heard somebody say it. Us? Very good. So he's praying for us right now. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You may be seated. This passage is fascinating. First of all, Jesus is praying that we would be one just as what? As the Father and the Son are one. Now, one of the divine mysteries of every aspect of Orthodox Christianity for the past 2,000 years, whether you're Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, is our belief in the Trinity, okay? And if somebody wants to stand up and explain it really quick, we'll just, uh, no? Okay. It, is a, it is a holy, divine mystery, but it is critical to our understanding of the faith. And I think it's this beautiful thing that Jesus is praying that we would be one with one another in the same way that the Father and the Son are one with one another. Because the Father and the Son are perfectly united in being and purpose and love, yet they are distinct. They are not the same. But there's a point in the garden where Jesus is praying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is a mystery which none of us can fully grapple with and get our minds around. But there is a reality of unity and there's a reality of distinction that both exist within the Trinity. And Christ is praying that we would have that same experience with one another. Perfectly unified, yet still distinct. It's a mystery. But it's beautiful. That we would be unified in our one Lord, one faith, one baptism, sharing the gospel, making disciples, yet distinct. Being unified does not mean uniformity. It does not mean everybody looking the same or doing the same thing or having the same gifts. It means being unified, distinct. The other aspect of this verse, and really the, a verse that's just been profound for Marissa and I over the years, is where Jesus prays that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Christ is praying that we would have perfect unity with one another and with him. Why? So that the world may believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. Now, apologetics is a, is a worthwhile study of our faith, learning about all the, all the rationale and reason for why we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, why we believe the Bible is true, why we believe in creation, why we believe in an afterlife and heaven and hell. Apologetics is a worthwhile study. But 
Jesus here, in a sense, is telling us that our greatest apologetic isn't our rational ability to explain the reasonableness of the faith. Our greatest apologetic is our ability to live in unity with other followers of Jesus beyond the walls of our mission organization or our local church. Let me say that again. Our greatest apologetic is our ability to live in unity with other followers of Jesus, regardless of language, regardless of denomination, regardless of whether you like their ministry strategy or not. Okay? Now, this doesn't always mean we do all the same things together, but it does mean we think about how we talk about them. It does mean that we think about how we treat them, humility, gentleness, patience, respect. It doesn't mean that we partner with them in every little thing, but it does mean that we recognize that they are part of the body of Christ, and I show them respect. I speak well of them when they are not in the room. I love them. I look for ways to pray for them and encourage them and support them. Oftentimes when churches and organizations go through conflict, some people stay and some people leave. And we experienced that in Sin North over the past several years. Conflict, some people stay, some people leave. And it can be really easy to kind of get into this mindset of right, wrong, who's out, who's in. But remember, this is just the trellis. The little organizations that we set up to manage bank accounts and and to, you know, to organize different ministries, that's the trellis. God sees the body of Christ as much bigger than that. The body of Christ extends beyond the walls of our church or the walls of our organization. And do we continue to speak with kindness, with love, with respect? Do we continue to pray for those who stayed or those who left? Do we continue to view them as part of the body of Christ and love them, think of them, wish their best? Conflict has been going on since the beginning. I, I, as we were wrestling with conflict, I was encouraged, <laughs> maybe in a sick way, uh, by reading, you know, it's like, okay, if Adam and Eve and then their first two kids get in an argument and one of them murders the other one, conflict has been around a while. It's not a new thing. It's not like all of a sudden, like, man, I did something wrong in the church or in the mission organization and now there's conflict. It's been around for forever. I, I'm fascinated by the way that Jesus chose his disciples. I mean, if you want to think of a group to start something that's destined for failure, he chose a good group, right? <laughs> because here you have, you know, a, a, you know, a nationalist, you know, a, a zealot who's, who's going to fight against the Romans. Then you have another guy that's kind of, you know, you know, sidled up next to the Romans and, and doing the tax collector thing. Then you got fishermen. I mean, it's, it'd be like starting a new church with like a you know, pro-Trump person and a homeschool family that doesn't believe in any government involvement and it's socialist a Democrat and go like, hey, let's start a church together. This is going to work, right? Like, it's just, it's like, wow, Jesus, what were you thinking? You know what he was thinking? He doesn't want people to be mistaken that when there's a group that they are just together and getting along because they all think the same. He wants it to be clear that when there's people getting along, it's a miraculous Holy Spirit miracle that these people are cooperating together and treating one another well because by all human appearances they shouldn't. He wants it to be something that's spiritual and divine 
the body of Christ that's distinct yet unified. <clears throat> so we kind of look at where we've been here. We've talked about the unity of God's family when we receive Jesus. And I just want to, I just want to make sure, just hit this again really quick. You cannot experience unity apart from the gospel of Christ. If somebody's saying, hey, we need to be unified with that group, and they don't believe that all people need a Savior, that all people are sinful, if they want to be unified, but they say, well, this, they really don't believe in a heaven and hell, they don't really think that Jesus was the Son of God, you can't really ever be unified, okay? Because the, the, the core of the gospel is our unity. And if those elements are ever taken away, you can't experience true unity. But likewise, the core of the gospel is our unity, right? And so it's going to go beyond our church's doctrinal statement. It's going to go beyond our mission organization's ministry philosophy or strategy or membership. Our adoption to Christ's family is our unity, both exclusively and inclusively, right? We've talked about how although God creates unity through the blood of Christ, it is our responsibility to protect and preserve that unity through humility, gentleness, forgiveness, patience, respect. We've talked about how it is through demonstrating this unity that people notice that something is different about the church, that people are intrigued by who Jesus is and want to look further. <clears throat> I'm encouraged by the fact that at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, there's a note that's included in Paul's letter. And this is probably one of the last things that Paul wrote. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Paul writes, Luke is alone with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Somewhere between Acts and 2 Timothy, something changed in Paul's heart and his outlook. Who was right in Acts 15? Was Paul right or was Barnabas right? Who was right about whether John Mark should come along on the missionary journey? I don't know if that's the right question. Sometimes there's questions of who's right, but I think sometimes there's just ways that God is working through different people, and sometimes God works through conflict. But here, towards the end of Paul's life and ministry, he recognizes his love for Mark. He recognizes his need for Mark. He recognizes Mark's value, where at one point maybe he struggled to see it. Maybe there's a change in Mark. Maybe there's a change in Paul. I don't know. We know that there's, a, there's this desire to be together, appreciation for one another. What could God do through Send? What could God do through Lakeside? If we could operate in this sort of Holy Spirit unity that we're so closely connected to the Father, abiding in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are supporting and loving not only those in our midst, but those beyond these walls as well. We're praying for the church down the street that they'd be successful in their vacation Bible school. We're praying for this church because we know they're struggling because they don't have a good youth group going on. We're, or we're looking for ways to support this other body of believers because we know they're without a pastor right now. One of the privileges in missions, I think, is it's not always this way, but for us it's been a reality that you look at the, the, the landscape of, of Alaska and northern Canada where our mission functions, and we go, we cannot do it alone. 
And the work of the gospel is important enough that we have to try and partner with other people. Sometimes we have disagreements with them, but we have to look for ways that we can encourage and support one another because we cannot do it on our own. How do we love them? How do we support them? There's a wonderful ministry called Arctic Barnabas uh, that, that serves in Alaska, and basically their role is to be uh, encouragement and provide uh, practical and, and encouragement support to pastors and missionaries in the remote parts of Alaska. And every year they put on something called the Ministry Family Retreat, and they bring pastors and missionaries from all over Alaska together for a time of sharing and worship and Bible teaching, provide stuff for the kids. And they're, as they've been doing this over the years, they're thinking, like, how do we help these missionaries stay long-term? But one of the unintended consequences, blessings, benefits of that has been that all of us view the body of Christ as a little bit bigger. Because we're getting to know these people operating in different villages outside of our organizations and going like, oh wow, these people love the Lord too. They got the same problems I got. They're struggling too. You know, hey, I know that if I'm ever over here in this village, there's a friend that I got there. And they're praying for me. We're encouraged by each other. We're sharing together. We're supporting each other. I want to close uh, with a story, and the worship team is welcome to, welcome to come up here. As we think about what this, what this can look like, I know a young man who grew up in a uh, Christian family, small church, and uh, made a decision for Christ at a young age. As he got into his teen years, he grew angry, rebellious, walked away from Christianity. And as he was in high school, uh, a friend of his, who also happened to be a previous drinking buddy, said, hey, I'm getting involved in this junior high youth group. You want to come help and serve with me at this junior high youth group? And uh, this young man, God had begun to work in his heart, and he got involved. And then, um, wasn't too soon long after that, he got invited to a weekend youth retreat, and he went and rededicated his life to Christ. And throughout high school, as he began to walk with Christ again, he had a hunger for being around believers wherever they were at. The church that he had grown up in still didn't have much of a youth group, so he got involved in a Lutheran church, and a Baptist church, and a Reformed church. And each of these churches contributed to him in different ways. And some of these churches even worked together on events, and some of them even shared staff together. And that was me. And I've been profoundly impacted for my whole life on how God can use different churches that see each other as common members of the body of Christ. It doesn't mean that we drop all distinctions. It doesn't mean that we don't recognize our uniqueness. But it does mean that the body of Christ is so big and the need is so great that we look for ways to encourage and support one another as best we can. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we come to you not on the basis of anything that we have done, but because of your mercy, because of the great, glorious, beautiful salvation that is given to us through Jesus. Oh Lord God, we have nothing in ourselves to offer you. We are holy and completely dependent upon you. And Lord, we thank you that you are putting together this beautiful temple, this glorious family, this this citizenship that goes beyond our knowledge or our preferences of what would be best. And Lord, you are uniting us together into this, this glorious body. 
And Lord, I just confess that so often we are tempted to speak poorly of those who are different than us or who look different or practice different or speak different. Lord, we are prone to remember hurts and grievances. Lord, help us to forgive. Lord, help us to be gentle. Help us to be patient. Help us to show forbearance. And Lord, by your mighty power, as we abide in you, as we allow us ourselves to be filled with your Holy Spirit, would you unite us together with you and with one, with one another so that the world would know that Jesus is indeed the Son of God sent by the Father into this world to redeem the world so that we could have new life, so that we no longer need to fear death, so that we could discover the joy that it is to be brought together with this beautiful family and have a hope that extends beyond this life for the glory of your name in Jesus' name.